What would you do if you had a million dollars to spare? Maybe spend it on something nice for yourself or your family? Or maybe donate it to tinnitus research, for instance? Welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm Hazel, your host. A while back, we read a good news story about a man who had donated $1 million to tinnitus research. Now, we all know how underfunded tinnitus research is, so that's good news all around. But who is this guy that felt compelled to donate so much money for tinnitus and why? Well, we have him right here with us, Brian Fargo. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you for having me. We're going to hear all about Brian's personal story with tinnitus and the motives behind his donation. But before we get there, I'd like to introduce our other guest, Dr. Hamid Jalilian, professor of otolaryngology at the University of California. His team is the recipient of this donation. Welcome, Dr. Jalilian, or I've been told I can call you Hamid. Yes. Hi, Hazel. Thank you very much. Great. So, Brian, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? Uh, well, let's see. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, uh, the video game development business, so I've been on computers since I was 18 years old and barely got out of my chair. So when, when we've had to sit home for COVID, it was like, yeah, no big deal. I've been doing this my whole life. Um, but anyway, so, you know, video games have been my, my whole life and, and, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I, I do what I enjoy and, and I've, and I've done well with it. Um, and then, uh, as far as it relates to this subject, you know, I've, I've never had a medical issue my entire life, uh, until this one. And, uh, it's very different. You know, I've always ran my own companies and, you know, as an entrepreneur, there was always a way. Like there was always a way around every obstacle. You could fix everything somehow. And this is probably the first time in my life where I hit something and I just can't make it go away. You know, well, not yet anyway. <laughs> you know, so, you know, uh, it was uh, quite a change for me to experience something like this. So when did you develop tinnitus and how? Well, the how's a good question. I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, it started, you know, uh, maybe 15 years ago, but it was just a little bit of ringing. I'd hear it go up or down. People couldn't hear it. I could, but it wasn't, it was no big deal, you know? And, and if I, uh, I used to love green tea and I would drink those green teas and it would make it a little bit worse. So I'd cut back. Uh, but then it was about four years ago. It just, it took, it went to another level to where it was, you know, you know, like chime bells while I'm trying to sleep. And then I, it, 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 it translated to, I could physically feel it, you know, either, either sizzling coming from my head or it was like in my frontal lobe in the beginning. And so I didn't know what the hell was going on, uh, when it moved into that stage. And that set me on kind of this big, long journey, you know, uh, how I, you know, met uh, Hamid and, you know, I think my story is similar to other people, you know, but then dissimilar in that I've had the, you know, the money to go try everything. You know, I've flown around the world and TMS treatments and you name it, you know, I probably tried it. Um, you know, I had the, uh, the ability to do so and the, and the, and the mind to go do so. And so, 
you know, it's quite a journey because you have to, you, you quickly discover, you know, if you have something like this, and I'm sure this applies to other illnesses, you have to become an expert in it yourself to a degree. Not like the doctor himself, like he could vertically go down, you know, much further information wise, but I need to know a lot about all the different treatments and all the different things and see what applies to me and does anything make me feel better? And th and then, you know, I think the big component of it is hope. You know, I think that, you know, that's like number one to me. It helps you just kind of get through it, you know. I always found it difficult. Like I love the, on Reddit, there's tinnitus research. Love that stuff. The open tinnitus stuff, I felt really bad for these people because, you know, you could, you could read the despair, but it was difficult. It didn't make it, like I didn't want to read it, you know. I needed to focus on on the more optimistic stuff and, you know, what could I do? And again, that's how I, and we'll get to that part in a little bit, how I ended up with uh, Dr. Jalilian. So I'll ask you to tell us a bit more in a moment about like which treatments you tried and how that ultimately led you also to, uh, to connect with Hamid. Um, but Hamid, could you first tell us a bit more about your professional background? Sure. So, um, I'm an ear, nose, and throat physician, so an otolaryngologist. Uh, I subspecialize in the ear, um, it's, so the subspecialty is called neurotology. I, I've actually always been fascinated since I started my training with tinnitus and trying to find how to solve it. Um, so when I was in my residency, um, I, uh, I just thought, what's the most difficult problem there is, and how, you know, how can that be solved? So I I try to do a lot of reading about it, and um, you know, I would uh, you would see these papers that have you know apparently were effective treatments, and so I would talk to my uh, professors and say, you know, why didn't this work or why didn't that work? You know, why can't we try such and such? Um, and so um, that was sort of my an initial fascination with it. And I actually, when I was in my residency training. Um, Sort of my specialty training, I actually uh, conducted a, a clinical trial, a randomized clinical trial of, um, and actually an antidepressant because I saw somebody had reported with four cases that they'd found that, that it was effective. And then I'd read that there was another type of antidepressant that had been found to be effective. So I wanted to see if it actually it, it does work. So we started it, although we couldn't finish it because I finished training. But I, I sort of had this thing in my mind that I got to solve this problem. And then when I came to UC Irvine, I thought, okay, I have a good team that I can work with here, and let's sort of try to come up with an idea that, that can hopefully solve this issue. And um, so that sort of evolved into the, the current project that we've been working on. Okay, so I, I am interested to hear a bit more about why you're in, so interested in tinnitus, because I've, I've looked up your research profile, and I saw a strong focus on like head and neck surgery and also... Uh, tumors in that area, like acoustic neuroma. I mean, I, I can see, you know, how, how some of that stuff might be connected to tinnitus, but I'm still interested to hear, like, what was it specifically that uh, triggered your interest? You know, I, I'm just trying to think. I mean, it really was, you know, my sort of fascination is with really big problems. You know, what what's a difficult problem? You know, how can I potentially solve it? I've always sort of thought about various ways of attacking the problem. So something like tinnitus, for example, doing something that hopefully can cure it. Um, I mean, but also uh, 
you know, those are more lofty goals. Um, you know, doing something that we can restore hearing, of course, that could probably solve tinnitus. Um, that, that's also, you know, it's, it's a very long-term um, thing. It would take 20, 30 years of work to, to be able to potentially get a, a cell-based treatment that would restore hair cells, for example, and then potentially improve tinnitus. But then I also think about, okay, how, how else could we um, deal with this problem uh, using maybe potentially a device? What's the fundamental question or problem that we need to solve that would solve this issue? And could that be done with a device? Could that be done uh, molecular uh, pathways uh, addressing those? Or you know, could it be done with medication potentially? And so that's sort of, I always sort of try to think about multiple different ways and tinnitus really is one of those things, at least, you know, when, when I sort of started learning about it, um, is that it seemed like there's really nothing out there that, that appeared to work for it. And really, there was really very poor understanding of it. This was in the mid-1990s. Uh, we have a, a little bit better understanding of it now, but, you know, about 25 years ago when I started um, my training, really there was, you know, not as much known about it as, as we do know now. And there were a lot of, just really a string of, uncontrolled studies of various uh, drugs and uh, things. And so I thought, okay, let's try to do this in a more scientific fashion, um, try to do it with controls, um, you know, do all the things that, you know, we should, we should do and when we're conducting clinical trials um, to see, you know, what we can accomplish and attacking it in multiple diff different ways. So the project that um, you know, Brian has been so generous to fund sort of one of the, the sort of several aspects of tinnitus that we're trying to attack at the same time. All right. I will ask you for sure to tell us more about that. But you also alluded to the importance of understanding tinnitus in order to treat it. And I agree that I think any successful treatment of tinnitus needs to be based on some kind of underlying model of how tinnitus works. And of course, we know that the trigger is often in the ear, but the phantom sound is created by the brain. But there's not really sort of one unifying theory of the exact mechanisms involved and, you know, where exactly in the auditory pathway the triggers lie. So do you have a theory on this? You know, as, as you said, basically the, the initial trigger is, uh, is at the uh, ear level um, and, you know, when I say ear, I mean the sort of the inner ear and and the nerves, you know, that are connected to the cells that um, pick up sound, um, the so-called hair cells. I think, you know, I mean, this is sort of our theory is that there is a loss of um, hair cells in the cochlea, or um, there may be loss of the connection between the nerves and those cells. So the, what what's termed synaptopathy. So the synapse, which is the connection between the nerve and the um, and the, the hair cell is sometimes lost, especially as a result of loud noise uh, exposure. We think that that's where sort of the trigger is, and then that there is an, uh, there's probably a kind of a looped pathway between the ear and the brain, meaning that there's sort of, if as long as there's input going up to the brain, that sort of keeps the brain, if you may, sort of and at its normal, what we call gain. So it basically, the information coming in is then translated into, um, you know, s the speech and whatnot. But if there is loss of cells in the inner ear or loss of connections, there's not as much input going into the brain. So the brain senses that reduction. And then, you know, we, we believe it sort of increases what we call the central gain, meaning that the brain is trying to turn up the information. Now, based on animal studies that have been done, 
one of the things that happens is when there is a loss of cells in a particular zone of the, the cochlea, um, when they've targeted those specific zones um, with, let's say, noise exposure, um, what they have found is that the cells in the, the auditory cortex that do that function of those frequencies are then kind of redistributed to do the adjacent frequencies. So for example, when they cause damage to the 6,000 hertz areas of the, the cochlea, the areas that coded for 6,000 before the damage were then doing um, the, the work of the 4,000 and 8,000, and a lot less of it uh, was, uh, was doing the 6,000 hertz because there weren't as many cells there coming in, information coming in. That change also increases this sort of baseline activity of the brain, um, which then we think that sort of the combination of the central gain and then uh, the sort of uh, what's thought to be maybe a loss of what's called sort of uh, environmental masking, basically not as much sound information getting through the ear to the brain. So central gain, uh, redistribution of activity, and then loss of peripheral masking are probably the three factors that lead up to tinnitus. Now, you know, the, the question is, why is it that some people have hearing loss and don't have tinnitus? We don't have a great answer for that just yet. I think, you know, there, there's still a lot that has to be figured out. Um, there probably is some element of, and uh, we believe that this is a significant element in tinnitus, of the attention of the brain to that activity. For example, you know, you have a watch on. Your brain's not constantly aware of the fact that you have a watch on, because if the brain were to pay attention to all these peripheral inf- pieces of information, it won't be able to do all the other things it needs to do, like perceive speech and produce speech and et cetera. So the brain puts that stuff into the background signal. And that's probably what happens is that people, some people, they, they're able to push that into the background signal and some people, um, the brain's paying more attention to it. And we believe that the loudness of the tinnitus um, sort of the ups and downs in the loudness probably has more to do with the attention than a continuous fluctuation in the hearing level or cell levels. Just to clarify, when you say that some people are able to sort of filter out this tinnitus signal whilst other people perceive it consciously, that that's, you're not talking about anything that happens at a conscious level, right? This, these are sort of subconscious processes or, or both? Correct. I mean, uh, part of it is, I mean, most of it is probably subconscious. There is probably a portion of it that's conscious in that there are people who, for example, continuously track their tinnitus. So they will like, you know, I have patients who come in with like big charts and, you know, of the calendar and sort of day to day. And, you know, that sort of attention to the tinnitus will definitely make it sound louder to them. So the more they pay attention to it. And one of the classic things I, I when I'm seeing patients, I ask them, how loud's the tinnitus? And they say, well, now that we're talking about it, it has, I'm paying more attention to it. So it seems louder um, to me. So I think most of it is subconscious, but there is probably a conscious element to the whole thing. So Brian, can you tell us a bit more about what treatments you tried? You said you went through this whole process of trying out different things. And and how did that ultimately lead you to connect with Hamid? So in the beginning, again, probably like a lot of people, you go to your audiologist is usually your first stop. And they put you through the different listening tests and, you know, Sure enough, you have tinnitus, you know, here's the frequency that your hearing loss is at. There's nothing you could do. Let us sell you some hearing aids. And that was pretty much it. Um, you know, the hearing aids, they, they didn't help me. And I tried all the different kinds, the ones that 
like the lyric that go all the way in your ear that you can't hear it. And that was like being at the bottom of a, of a tin barrel, <laughs> listening to people talk from 20 feet away. I couldn't stand that, but I didn't want them, you know, I was so, I didn't want the ones, you know, like an old man, you know, so I tried the, you know, so I tried, but I tried all the different ones and I tried three different audiologists that everybody say, well, go to this one, go to that one. Um, so I wasn't getting anywhere, you know, other than the same, you know, just by hearing aids. Um, so I started doing research, you know, on different things, lidocaine patches, you know, whatever, all the, all the different stuff that you read that, that you know, as you start that journey. Um, but one of the things I noticed is, is when I'd go in for an appointment for a, an adjustment on the hearing aid or whatever, I would ask them about, you know, this study or that study or that thing that was going on. And they really didn't know anything outside of hearing aids. And, and, and when I'd bring it up, you know, how when you're telling somebody something and they really have no interest whatsoever, you know, I could tell as I would tell the doctor, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not going to look into it. It was like patently obvious. So like that struck me, you know, that they don't really want to solve this, you know? Uh, and so I was like, okay, I'm really on my own here. I got to start diving in. One of the first things I did just because it was it just sort of randomly, I was driving home one time and I see this place called the rejuvenation brain spa and they do TMS treatments and, you know, and they, they did some imaging and they showed how my, you know, the, 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 the parts over my, this part of my brain, you know, near the cochlea were red compared to the normal person. Anyway, and I had, I went through 30 sessions of TMS and, and TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation. Stimulation. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not, you're not being electrocuted, but it feels like it sometimes, you know, and they're hitting all sorts of parts of the brain. And sometimes you'd go home and just, you know, oh my gosh. But let me tell you, I powered through it all, you know, and I remember this is about the time that I met Hamid. I could tell he wasn't wild about it, but he was like, you know, uh, you know, we'll meet soon. You know, you're ha do, do what you need to do, you know, contact me. I met him through a mutual friend of mine whose father he helped. As a side note, you know, I, I remember going to lunch with my, uh, with like, who was like my best friend at the time and saying, oh my gosh, you know, this, this is really, you know, starting to affect me. I can feel it. It's loud. It competes. It's hard to hear people in restaurants. I don't want to go to restaurants. And he says, oh, you, you remember Roger or somebody? I'm like, no. He goes, yeah, he had the same thing. He killed himself. I mean, that was like the first thing I heard. I'm like, well, gee. Thanks for the pep talk on that one, uh, Tom, you know, but like, that was like, you know, just kind of threw it out there. So I, what I wanted to do was just make sure it was tinnitus. So I did MRI, fMRI, SPECT MRI, you know, I did every possible thing, looked at it. So there's nothing else was going on. You know, that was sort of affirmed, but you know, I saw the top neurologists, you know, to, to try different things out. Most of the neurologists, same thing work out, you know, they said, you know, whatever they, they, they didn't give a lot of, a lot of hope. Uh, I had a mild sleep apnea. So, Hey, let's see if that's affecting it. So I got a CPAP. I think Hamid actually got that one for me. I tried the TRT and the CBD treatment, you know, that, that just wasn't helping me. You know, he, he, they were surprised because I had a physical sensation with it. He's like, that's very unusual. That's when they sort of 
prescribing me different things. And Hamid also had success, I think, mostly with people who were new to having tinnitus as opposed to people who had it for a long time. So, I mean, it was, uh, you know, migraine medicine, you know, low dosage uh, antidepressants, you know, would help people out. So, to, to pyramate, Paxil, nortotriptyline, gabapentin, Elevil, you know, uh, j- just, you know, about everything under the sun, I was willing to like, all right, let's, let's give it a try, you know. And of course, and then there was like, well, sometimes combinations, you know, work of the two. So then you're like, well, right, well, maybe I'll mix this and that. And some things would just make my head just sizzle off the chart. Like, and I would pow- I'd do it for like six or eight weeks, just every day, pretty much in, in pain. And then I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't do that one anymore. You know, I, I give up. So I, I went to, uh, like I said, the, you know, I'm able to go, I was able to fly to uh, Ireland and pick up their, you know, the Neuromod device. You know, I was, I was, I was really hopeful on that one. You know, very hopeful, and it just, it just didn't help. You know, I and I was, you know, Hamid's great because I, you know, I read something online as, as a layman, you know, and get excited about it, and then I send it to him, and he's like, "There's no control group. There's no this." You know, you know, and you're like, "Okay, you know, I shouldn't have been excited." You know, based upon it's not. It's that thorough research on some of these things. So that didn't do anything. Gosh, I got a hyperbaric chamber, meditation, acupuncture, mycotoxin test, sauna with a red light, red light, should the V light shooting red light up your nose for treatment. Really, so it, it, I'll, I'll, and we can hit some of these other things. The, the only thing that's really helped me out at this point is meditation does help because it allows me to take my thought off of off of what's going on. If I really focus on my breathing, um, you know, I tell myself that if I was a meditation master, I could probably make it disappear in a second. Like if I was just the guy on the mountaintop for 20 years, I could do my thing and it would probably just go away. So, you know, I'm I'm way down here, he's way up there, but you you can if you just focus on your breathing, you can distract from it. And the other thing for me is helping, and I know this one doesn't help for everyone, I take a very low dosage clonopin, uh, you know, like a milligram per day. You know, it's very quite small. I don't even feel it, but it just calms the nerves a little bit. It makes it more bearable during the day. Nighttime, it seems like whatever my brain does at night, and, the, you know, I do, if I go to sleep for an hour and I wake up, bang, it's where it is. And so I have to play masking you know, so I can go back to sleep. But, but, but that's really, those are the only two things where I've had some, some relief. And then as with everybody, you have good days and bad days. You try not to search for patterns because some people say, you know, you'll never find it, but you kind of can't help it. So, you know, you're kind of triggered. What did I eat? Did I have sugar? Did I do this? You know, you know, some things, you know, if I have red wine, it's going to irritate it. Sure as anything. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I'm having a red wine tonight. I'm going to just pay the price. I don't have it that frequently. Uh, but other days, you know, but, but you know, lack of sleep for sure. You know, that sort of, there's some obvious things to do it. But other days I'll have, I'll, I, I won't have a lot of sleep and I'll have an unbelievable day. It'll be like a one out of 10, you know, and then other days I'll have slept well. And I just got back from Hawaii, you know, it was great. Sleeping as long as you want, laying in the sun. I had several days which were bad and there was no, not like I was stressed. So 
Anyway, you're always you're always looking for for patterns. Is my point. Yeah, that sounds familiar, Brian. And in fact, many of the things you said sound uh, dreadfully familiar, including physicians who who are not not interested in understanding tinnitus. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I must say you tried almost everything really that is like even almost. remotely <laughs> available or remotely thought to maybe help with tinnitus so i can imagine that's you kind of get really tired of going through that medical i try I, I was ready to fly to south america and try uh, aloeska or whatever that stuff is you know i was like you're reading like you you get desperate um yeah but so oh, but i do want to say so i finally you know got introduced to hamid why I gravitated towards him is he was well versed in a and what everybody else was trying. You know, it wasn't just. I mean, he has his own. I don't want to say silo, but his own focus. Okay, but he's well aware of everything else that was going on. So when I was talking about all these different things, he he, he had a knowledge of, of of a lot of them. So that that made me feel good. And then it was just the. You know, no, we can make this better. We can do this. You know, I, whether it's this or that or this or that. You know, I mean, he 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 was you know very positive about it, but he was positive backed up by science, not just a friend who had a positive attitude. Um, and so that that drew me towards him. And then and then you know he had some success with a particular you know uh, device, which I'm sure you guys will talk about. That got me excited, and it kind of made. You know, you never know, and I think I think that some people's tinnitus is probably different parts of the brain. I mean, I don't know, but but like with mine, I just feel like the, the electrodes are just kind of like overfiring somehow. And so, you know, as he described what he was doing, it it felt consistent with what um, you know I was experiencing. And then I guess the last part, it's, to your point earlier, is yeah, there's just no funding. You know, it, it's really awful. You know, I. I I remember uh, that Dr. Rauschecker, Rausch he did a great TED talk and, you know, it was logical and it had some good points to be made, but he's on his website. He can't raise $10,000. We tried uh, to help for, him with that, but yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah. For, so my attitude is like, if you could make it go away tomorrow, would you pay a million dollars? And most people would say yes, assuming they had the money, but there's not enough research going on. So he can't even get $10,000. And then, and I know I've been following uh, Dr. Shores as much as I can, and that's supposedly coming any minute. But even they're trying to raise money for marketing, for, you know, and I'm not quite sure where that's at. So anyway, my attitude was that there wasn't enough money being put into this. And I'll be one of those guys that puts money towards the research and hopefully something great comes out of it and provides hope to people. So how did when you when you first met Hamid like how did he help you specifically because it sounds like you'd already pretty much tried everything so was it was he able to help you with specific treatments or was it more that you just felt like he uh, he's taking the problem seriously and that gives me hope for the future Yes the things that he was trying to help me with in the beginning one was to steer me away from certain things so that was a value but the other thing was I think that, you know, we tried some of the low dosage antidepressants and things like that. But I think that those, you know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, doctor, that, you know, the, those seem like they tend to help people who are haven't had tinnitus for a while, where I've had it for a decade, only it just got worse, you know, about four years ago. So I wasn't getting relief, but I was like, 
yes, this guy is very serious and very passionate and very knowledgeable and wants to solve this problem. So I think that stuck with me more than like he prescribed something and oh my gosh, I feel better. It, it wasn't like that. So let's get back to the doctor. Um, Hamid, what is it specifically that Brian's donation is funding? Sure. Um, I'll give you a quick background um, so that um, it sort of makes sense. So one of the things that we actually, uh, for, for years, actually, I wanted to try. I mean, we started this idea in 2006, but of actually uh, stimulating the inner ear to electrically to be able to basically send a nerve signal to the brain because just a ba uh, background quick background is when you lose hearing um, you generally lose the hearing cells the hair cells you don't lose the nerve cells the nerve cells will remain alive for many many years afterwards so if you can i mean the one solution would be regenerate the hair cells reconnect them to the nerves and then send the signal naturally to the brain but while hair cell regeneration actually has been done in animals the reconnection of the nerve to the cell has been a task that no one has been able to accomplish. And people have been working on it for 20 years. And I thought, I mean, we could go the molecular route, but that's going to take many, many years, uh, and we may not be able to do it. Um, so I said, well, what can, what can we do in a, in a, with a device potentially? And we know that a, a cochlear implant, which is a device that restores hearing for people who've lost significant hearing, it's basically an electrode that goes inside the the inner ear, the cochlea, and from there stimulates those remaining nerve cells. And in those people, about 70% of them will have significant improvement or disappearance of their tinnitus when the nerve is being stimulated. The problem is most people with tinnitus don't have a significant hearing loss, so we can't put a cochlear implant in people with tinnitus. So what's sort of the next best thing would be to try to stimulate the, the cochlea from the outside somehow to be able to stimulate the nerve. So that was sort of the initial uh, sort of concept. And then we had, as we were um, contemplating doing the electrical stimulation uh, through the eardrum and stuff, we had a, a patient who'd had a cochlear implant, who'd, been, who'd gone deaf in one ear, had a cochlear implant for the purpose of tinnitus. When they did the implant, they actually couldn't get the tinnitus to get better. So they sent the patient to uh, my colleague, Fang Zhang, who is in our uh, department, he's a professor, and he is a cochlear implant researcher. And so he did a lot of different things to try to make this tinnitus go away and was finally able to find a certain stimulation that would make the tinnitus disappear. That then sort of motivated us, said, well, if we can find something very specific that will extinguish the tinnitus electrically, could we do that with sound? And so we, we both kind of went the route of trying to find a sound therapy solution to tinnitus. And so we each had our own different uh, system that we developed. His became a device uh, and mine became a software. And so we basically did that for a while. But over time, I realized what we were able to accomplish with, with sound therapy, even though I, th I think our, our sort of the, the, the sound therapy that we'd created was more effective. I mean, we tested it. It was more effective than white noise we're still not making it disappear in people. And that's sort of what everybody wants. I mean, um, we all look at, you know, in, in the sort of medicine, we say, okay, did we improve it? And that's what the studies are saying. Well, we had 20% reduction or 30% reduction of the tinnitus. But if you ask a bunch of patients, what do they want out of their tinnitus therapy? They say, I want this thing to disappear. And so we'd sort of tried our sound therapy for a while. Dr. Zhang and I got together and said, let's try to put an effort into doing this electrical stimulation of the inner ear. If we could 
accomplish that in a way that doesn't damage the hearing, then we should hopefully be able to, to get the nerves to stimulate the brain and then the, the brain to quiet down and the tinnitus to go away. That's sort of how we arrived at the initial um, idea. And then we did some initial experiments and we got a, a funding from the National Institutes of Health to do experiments where we stimulated at various points. We started actually on the scalp because we wanted to be sort of, you know, minimally invasive or non-invasive. And so we tried trying to figure out if there's a pattern of where we can stimulate through the scalp and get it to concentrate onto the cochlea on one side, hopefully. And what we found was that, the, unfortunately, electric stimulation dissipates through the skin. So it spreads through the skin. It doesn't penetrate bone very well. So you can't get precise stimulation on the inner ear from the scalp. So then we tried the ear, the outer ear, the front of the ear, and then the ear canal. And then finally, we tried the eardrum itself. And still, while we were able to get the tinnitus to quiet down in a very small fraction of people, it wasn't enough that we would say, this is something that's doing something. Let's, let's try to figure out the next step. And so then, um, then we try to figure out what sort of devices to, to use and try to get it past the, um, the institutional review board, which has to approve all research in our institution. And then um, it re required um, approval from the FDA as a, um, to, to sort of experimentally do this. So we went through all that process, and then uh, we were able to make a small incision in the eardrum, uh, pass a small electrode against the so-called round window membrane. And the round window membrane is the, sort of the only area of the inner ear that's not covered by bone. Again, as I said, trying to stimulate through bone is makes it doesn't work as well because the, the electric stimulation spreads and it doesn't penetrate the bone very well. And if you turn it up too much to try to penetrate bone, you're going to get other uh, symptoms. You'll, so you'll get the sensory nerves on the surface, feel pain or, or, or burning and things like that. So we put it up against the round window, and that's when we saw that we were able to get about 60% of the time, we could get the tinnitus to go away. And we in, our initial uh, couple patients were people who had uh, very poor hearing in that ear. And so, because we weren't sure if what we are doing is going to potentially damage hearing. So... We started with patients who had, of course, unilateral tinnitus, one-sided tinnitus, and had a significant hearing loss where they had non-usable hearing. So their hearing wasn't even good enough to be able to use a hearing aid. So that way, if we potentially damage anything, we haven't caused any significant harm to the patient. So we did that, and we found that actually it doesn't damage hearing at all, and that uh, we were able to make the tinnitus go away. And one of these patients had had the tinnitus for 20 years, and after the stimulation, for a few minutes the tinnitus went away for several hours. And that got us very excited that we're maybe onto something. And so then we started doing it on, on more individuals. And so then we basically proved the concept that if you stimulate at the round window level, you can get stimulation to the nerve and then from there to the brain and then quiet down the tinnitus. And so that then made us think, well, how can we do this for the long term? Because we can't have people come in and we stick an electrode through their eardrum. So we have to find a way to do this. And there are basically, you know, two ways to potentially do this. One is sort of the, the traditional approach of a, of a cochlear implant. And cochlear implant, you have to go from behind the ear, you have to make an incision, it involves a, a big surgery. You have to drill through the bone of the, the mastoid. You have to get through this tiny space between a couple of different nerves and then place the, an electrode by the um, inner ear. But the problem with that approach is that you're only going to have a limited number of people who could do this surgery. And, you know, in the United States, there are only about probably about 300 people uh, who are ear subspecialists who 
you know, very frequently do that type of approach. And most general ENTs would not be able to do this. And if we're going to try to help millions of people, we can't have a device that's going to be too complicated to put in. So then our sort of next thought was, can we do something that is essentially doing kind of what we're doing, which is put something in behind the eardrum that then allows the eardrum to close. And then we would stimulate it from the outside. So we can try to essentially get current to the device that's that's inside. And then that would do the stimulation. And then you would send this to sort of the stimulus parameters from the outside device to the inside device. So that was sort of what we wanted to, to do. But, you know, developing a device like that is a very significant undertaking. And, um, you know, it, you know, it was going to, you know, at, at the very least, we, we thought it was going to take a few years of, of development and then testing and animals and whatnot. And that, that unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, as, as you've alluded to, there's number one, there is, um, these things cost a lot of money because it, we have to have people do these things and we have to pay those people. And number two, there is very little funding for the type, this type of research. So what the, like the National Institutes of Health in the United States that sort of funds uh, most medical research, they, they don't want kind of things that are not a sure thing because they want to be able to show that, you know, the taxpayer dollars that went towards research were able to accomplish something. Not that we, we did this great thing, but it didn't work. Um, so what oftentimes they need is you need to have developed a device and then have tested it, showed that it, it works in some people, then they'll fund a larger study. And, you know, until you get the device, you really can't do anything with, you know, and, and get, get large funding. And so that's when Brian, uh, I think on a uh, uh, sort of, he sometimes uh, sends me emails about various things that he's read about and, and sort of asks me what, what my thoughts are. And he'd send me something about um, stimulating the nerves and how that was effective. And I said, um, and I think I responded that, yes, I mean, I know it that works, I and mean, we know we've done the experiments so that if we can just stimulate the nerves of the cochlea, we can make the tinnitus go away in at least the majority of people. And I said, that's why it's sort of, we really need to take the next step and really to do that. And he said, well, tell me more about it. And so we, we talked a little bit more, and he said, well, how much will this cost? And so I talked to my collaborators, which are Professor Zhang and uh, professor Green, who's an electrical engineer, um, professor at uh, UC Irvine, and I said, "What what do you think? You know, our timeline would be how much you would, do you think the cost would be?" And so I got back to Brian, and Brian was very generous to say that he would fund it if we raise the other half of the funding. So we got to work um, to raise the other half, and we were very fortunate to have a, a number of uh, donors, in, including some of uh, Brian's friends who were very generous to donate money towards that. And then we raised a certain amount of money, and then we had about $110,000, I think, we raised. And then we uh, we had another donor who was uh, very generous, and, and he asked me what what I needed funding for. And I told him, I said, we have this challenge uh, from Brian. And, you know, this is uh, sort of, we've been able to raise uh, this much, but we have a gap. So, if, you know, he could help at least with part of the gap. And we were just uh, sitting at lunch and he said, call Brian, I'll, I'll cover the rest of it. Um, so as soon as I got back to my car, I, I uh, texted Brian and I said, so we got the, the other half uh, covered. So had Brian not put in that initial challenge and the, the money, um, this would have never been possible. So now we've been uh, working on developing the the chip on the sort of the the outside device and the inside device, which will be doing the communication and the the, the stimulation. 
we're now testing uh, the chip to make sure it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And then in, in this next series of experiments, we'll be doing it in cadavers and then animals um, and then eventually humans. Wow, that's uh, quite the roller coaster ride, isn't it? To get to actually be able to conduct a study like that. Yeah. Just to get back to the sort of mechanics of the device, it, it doesn't stimulate specific frequencies per se, right? It just stimulates sort of across the board? No, so you can you can change it so it can, st because part of the problem is with electric stimulation is you have a very broad range of things you can do. So there is sort of the, the frequency and the amplitude and then the the shape of the wave that would do the stimulation. So it could be a sinusoidal, a smooth, um, it could be a, what we call a square wave where it's kind of stimulus on and then off right away. So sinusoidal will go slowly up, slowly down. Uh, you could do it what, what's called a triangular, which goes up sharply, down sharply. You know, there are probably hundreds and hundreds of different ways you can stimulate uh, the inner ear. And what we found is that each person is different. And so we can't have a device that can only stimulate at a certain frequency. We have to have a broad range of frequencies, broad range of, of shapes and an amplitude. And so the device is, you know, capable of, of doing this. That's sort of the, the goal. And what it would initially have to run through is a series of parameters it will run through and then see which one works for the patient. And then it will sort of, you know, learn that those are the ones that work for the patient. So then the patient has significant tinnitus. They will turn on and it will sort of run through the most effective ones for them, basically. Brian, how closely are you involved in the research, uh, if at all, at this point? Well, first, I, I, I'll say I, I've always uh, kind of prided myself on my ability to spot people who are talented and smart and uh you know in, in the video game business you know i gave blizzard their start in the business and some other people that ended up being very successful and so i feel that way about the doctor you know i just i just feel like you know he's smart and he's passionate he knows what he's doing as far as being involved i mean i don't i don't have anything to to to, to add beyond that they just sort of update me um on what's going on and the progress and and uh so really it's just progress and then and then and the other thing which you know i i i've i've seen articles that sort of talk on a, in a similar way about uh ways of dealing with tinnitus that have to do with electrically stimulating stuff and so i'll send it to the doctor and he's kind enough to kind of go through and go yeah this this part is a similar to what we're trying to do and you know they're, they're this particular thing they you know he knows the doctors that tried it and where they're at with it and that sort of thing so the doctor's kind enough to 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 help me look at the progress that's being made uh on all these different fronts and let me know kind of what seems to have value and maybe what maybe what part which parts they're not being completely thorough uh and and what they're in what when what they're presenting yeah, something we've seen at Tinnitus Talk over the years, having followed online research and also we run this online Tinnitus community, is we see a lot of sort of emerging treatments from time to time that then seem promising and then they'll get hyped. You know, most recently it was Neuromod and Frequency Therapeutics. and But I do also think people don't always understand how science works and that it's a long road filled with trial and error and which means that, you know, even if a particular study doesn't 
gives this disappointing results, it doesn't necessarily mean that the treatment is fundamentally flawed, but sometimes you have to go like back to the drawing board and adjust the dosage or adjust the frequency or look at a different target group. Or so it could mean running more trials, spending more money, waiting more years. Like, so Brian, I'm curious, like how you sort of view the road ahead here. I try not to get my expectations too high at how quickly anything's going to happen. You know, I'm in the software field. I mean, I make games and a game takes four years plus to make, and we don't have to go through the FDA and, you know, we're not going to harm people. And so, you know, we don't have near the the hoops that we have to jump through. I don't know. I, I'm just, I just, I try not to put a, a date in my mind. Like I, I remember I was on the tinnitus research and Somebody said, when do you think we'll really have a cure? And somebody went, 30 years, you know? And then people are like, well, I think we'll probably have stuff that, that's that's probably will make us feel a lot better. You know, maybe it won't be considered a cure in less than a decade. And most people, well, yeah, that's probably reasonable. You know, I hope it doesn't take a decade. Uh, but I know it's, you know, I know it takes years. And Hamid, how do you see this? Because uh, obviously you always hope that your first results will be as positive or even more than you had hoped. But, uh, you know, are, are there particular things that you're worried about? So part of the challenge with obviously any clinical study of any disease really is that everyone's different. A single solution does not help 100% of people, probably in anything that we do. We know that we're not going to be able to, to cure tinnitus for everyone. But our hope is that we can at least uh, develop something that's going to help a majority of people very in a, in a more simple fashion. And then maybe the the other sort of group of individuals, it will help, but maybe a little bit further work uh, using the device or combining the device with the other therapies that we're developing, like uh, medication um, or potentially molecular therapies in the future. And, and how do you think your device is different from other types of electrical stimulation devices. I, I ask this because, you know, if you do a quick Google search for tinnitus, electrical stimulation, there's actually quite a few studies coming up. And of course, you know, Neuromod had their device that Brian also tried, which also uses a combination of electrical stimulation to the tongue in that case, in combination with sound therapy. Obviously, Dr. Susan Shore is working on a, on a device. What do you think is unique about the device you're working on? Sure. So the electric stimulation that uh, the Neuromod device, and I know Dr. Lim uh, was the, the sort of the brains behind it and great admiration for his work and Dr. Shore's work. You know, their uh, stimulation is really uh, stimulating somewhere on the, the surface of the body. So the skin or the neck, you know, in Dr. Shore's device and the tongue uh, in Dr. Lim's device. You know, ours is different in that we're actually stimulating the, the cochlea itself um, in a you know, we term a minimally invasive fashion. So we're not in good putting something inside the cochlea, like a cochlear implant, um, but we're putting something right on the outside wall and stimulating through there. Um, so that's what uh, ours is different is that we're, we're really going to the source. I think their devices are primarily combining uh, stimulation of like the trigeminal nerve uh, or other nerves in combination with uh, sound stimulation. And, you know, of course, sound plus other nerve stimulation has been done with like the vagus nerve and, and other things. So while I think their devices uh, are effective in potentially reducing the tinnitus for some individuals, our goal is really 
I want to approach this as a cure. I want to be able to make the tinnitus go away completely. And this is the only way we've been able to make it go away completely, at least temporarily. So that's our hope is that we would have a device that people would essentially, they'll turn it on for a few minutes. Uh, they will get a few, hopefully a few hours of relief. And then if it, you know, comes up and it's loud and they'll, you know, they can reactivate the device and they'll sort of turn it on and off as, as needed. Um, that's sort of the goal rather than a, a daily sort of sound therapy plus electric stimulation, which is what, what those other devices do. Now, is it possible that we might have to add sound therapy to our thing? It's possible. I mean, I don't know. It all depends on, of course, how, how people do once we start placing these in, in individual uh, patients. Of course, when anyone's working on a new treatment, people always want to know when is it going to be available? When will it come to market? I know it's often a very difficult question to answer, but but can you uh, enlighten us? Like, where are you now and what stages do you still have to go? And, and is there any prognosis for when it might become available? We've kind of uh, set ourselves a deadline of uh, trying to put it in, in, you know, experimentally in a small group of uh, individuals in, in four years. So that's, that's our hope. So our initially right now, it, it was uh, the, the main thing was really the, the initial design of the chips that sort of that takes a long time. And then the fabrication took a little bit extra time uh, because of the uh, all the problems worldwide uh, on chip uh, shortage and stuff like that. And so all of the chip manufacturers were backed up significantly. So it took a little bit longer than we we wanted uh, for them to make the chip. But anyways, um, we now finally have the chip and then we just got the, the other uh, components that we need for the testing. And so that's sort of what we're doing right now. And as you know, you probably know, it's basically when... When they make chip, they, they give us a, a bunch of them, um, and but not all of the chips are going to work. So we have to test all of them, see which ones are actually working, then use those to then do further testing and then create the distance that we would anticipate there being between the device in the ear canal and the device between, behind the eardrum and then testing it with a membrane in between, uh, you know, like there would be um, just to do all of the, the various things that we need to do to make sure this, this thing is doing what we think it's going to do. Then trying to make it fit into uh, a model of a cadaver, basically, uh, of, a, of the ear to make sure that this can fit and it will stay in place. That requires sort of some uh, other engineering effort, like biomedical engineering effort. And then the next step after that would be to, to actually put it in animals and run it for a while to make sure that we're not causing any uh, damage to their hearing if, if someone is, let's say, using this for you know six months uh, in a row. And then the sort of the next step would be if, if everything goes as, as planned, then we would actually experimentally place some in humans. But then that also requires a certain type of manufacturing. If you're going to put something in a human, it has to be done in a very particular type of way. And there are a lot of that, that will then require a uh, sort of an investigational device approval from uh, the FDA. So there is a process to be able to do these, um, to get something into humans um, that hasn't been you know done before. Well, there's so much more I would like to ask, but I know we have a hard cutoff in about 10, 15 minutes because, Hamid, you have your clinical practice, which uh, is uh, uh, also very important. I'd like to spend maybe the last part discussing awareness about tinnitus, uh, maybe starting with Brian. You've described your frustrations in sort of seeking treatment and not getting people to take the problem seriously. You know, you've also generated a bit of media attention with your large donation. But 
Why do you think it is that sort of the general awareness about the problem of tinnitus is so low and, and, and what do you think should be done about it? Yeah, it, and, and especially after, because I've read a lot of our servicemen and women coming back from war have had a real problem with it. So you'd think there's a lot of sympathy for those people and there's a lot of them that that might have increased it. But I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, maybe it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind type thing. Like you could somebody, you could tell somebody, oh my God, my head is, but they're just sitting there in complete silence while you're telling them that church bells are going off. You know, is there some psychological reason that it doesn't make it more? I don't know. You know, my, my donation helped, you know, raise it a little bit and, and it's been great. You know, I can say some of the feedback just from people that are so thankful you know, that somebody's trying something and willing to put their money where their mouth is and people who played my games in the past and like, oh my gosh, you know, I have tinnitus too. And so, you know, so, so from that level, there's some kind of, uh, you know, it's been raised up a bit. Whenever any celebrity gets it, you know, without, you know, the, always, you know, you know, if a celebrity has it, oh my gosh, it's terrible. And uh, so, you know, I think another guy from Coldplay uh, had tinnitus and, and I, he said he addressed it. I don't know exactly how. So I'm not quite sure, you know, why, why it doesn't have more. I mean, maybe, like I said, just because it's invisible and there's X amount of dollars going around. But, you know, for I know that it's, it's, it's quite serious for some people. I mean, people do extreme depression, suicide, all sorts of terrible things. So I, I feel like there's momentum in the space, but m maybe I'm just paying attention too much now and it feels like it to me, but, but, it, but, but, but uh, op the optimistic side of me feels like I'm seeing more articles and more approaches. You always have to check. It's, you know, it's always, they'll be like this, Hey, look at this great thing. And then you'll check the date of the article and it's 1995 you know like, well yeah great but it sounds like some breakthrough that's really exciting for today and then you then you look you always have to check the date so you know i'm not quite sure why there isn't more but it seems to be increasing hamid what's your view in the medical community um it, you know from a patient perspective we always feel like there's not that much attention to it but how do you see that more from an insider perspective I think, um, I mean, one of the problems I, I, I think with tinnitus and how it hasn't gotten as much attention and as Brian described, you know, you, the patients go um, to a physician or an audiologist and a lot of times it's either, you know, this is a hearing aid or um, live with it. Um, those are sort of the, the two most common things that happen if somebody goes to a physician or audiologist. Part of the, I think the problem has been in at least in my subspecialty is that a lot of physicians don't want to deal with it because it's, number one, there isn't a good solution uh, that anyone's come up with. And number two, people who are in a surgical specialty like uh, a surgical solution, and there isn't a surgical solution uh, for tinnitus. And that's part of the problem. There's no medical solution. There's no surgical solution. So they're like, I can't do anything for you. Our hope is that this device, you know, of course, will uh, will do what what we sort of think and and. Uh, believe it will. Um, and then on the sort of the medical side, we're also working on sort of some combination drugs that we have been doing a randomized clinical trial on. Um, and we've been working on sort of internet-based therapies using sound and uh, internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy as another sort of method. 
will awareness increase? I'm, I'm really hoping, um, you know, I, I think, you know, if we have good treatments that are um, scientifically sound and clinical trials done, you know, in the highest sort of, uh, sort of level of, uh, you know, the clinical trials should be done, which is a randomized double blind trial, which basically the experimenter and the the patient, neither of whom will know what they're getting, and it's done in a random fashion. Um, if we get randomized clinical trials showing effectiveness of something, either it be a device or a medication, for example, I think that's what's going to help is people see data and they say, okay, it looks like this thing works. I'm going to start doing this. And unfortunately, one of the things about medicine is that there is a lot of uh, sort of dogma that's that's in medicine from a time that something is discovered until it's practiced by about half the physicians in a specialty, on average takes like 17 years, which is ridiculously long. Um, but the only way one can shorten that is by repeatedly doing studies and good studies that show the effectiveness of something. So you do a small study, then you do a bigger study, then you do a multi-institutional study. And you know these have to sort of continuously telling people, and then other independent people have to be doing the study. So you know, if I'm developing the device and I do the study, um, that's great. But some people say, well, maybe he's biased. Uh, maybe he's doing something that that makes the device look better. So then, you know, we need an, someone outside of, you know, me doing the studies. Things like that. That's how people will start treating this, um, you know, condition better, I think, is is by people learning about what's out there and stuff. Right now, we don't have great solution, but, you know, we're certainly working on it. Great. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time. I'll ask each of you if there's anything else you want to share. Uh, Hamid, do, do you have any concluding remarks or is there anything that you still wanted to say? One thing, I should acknowledge my my colleagues and my team uh, that's been uh, working on on not only the device, but also all the other uh, clinical trials that we have um, going on. While I may sort of c come up with the concept and uh, the idea and, you know, uh, uh, people like Brian who are very generously supported. We need the people who are going to do, who are going to be in the trenches doing all the, the nitty gritty work and then other sort of, uh, and I don't have enough expertise to develop a device. So I need other colleagues who are experts at what they do. And um, that's why, you know, I work with professors Green, Michael Green and Fang Gang Zeng. Uh, and so I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the work that everyone on the team is doing to get these treatments to fruition. Brian, do you have any final remarks to share? Or do you maybe have advice for people like yourself who are struggling with tinnitus and really would want to just actively do something about it as you have? Well, I think, like I said in the beginning, I think the most important thing is that, is that there's a lot of activity in the sector. You know, Hamid's work and other people's work is that there is hope on the horizon. And so no matter how down you feel right now you just gotta know that there's a lot of really great smart people who are now also funded working on these problems and so i think that the hope that something there is is, is critical um and the other thing is that none of this is going to get solved without money i mean that that's where i you know i'm in a fortunate position and, and and not everyone has extra money of any kind so you know that aside but some people do have money and so if, if they see research or they read research, it's only going to happen, you know, if the people get money. So, you know, I've seen some promising, like we talked about earlier in the program, where they can't even raise $10,000 to do their test. And, you know, if you're suffering from tinnitus and you do have money, I would just implore to, you know, pick a cause, 
you know, whichever one they think is, is, uh, you know, might be best. So anyway, that, those would be my two things that I would say on the subject. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time and also for your contributions to Tinnitus Research. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hazel. Yeah, thank you.